if you wouldn't mind, go ahead and stand with me tonight for the reading of God's Word, as you guessed it, Colossians chapter 1, and uh, we're going to begin actually reading at verse 19. We're going to allow a little overlap here, but our focus will be 20 through 29. So beginning at verse 19, Colossians chapter 1, this is what it says, for it pleased the Father that in him, speaking of Jesus, should all fullness dwell. And that is the full fullness. Verse 20, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Now, we're going to stop reading right there. And really, the focus of this uh, passage of Scripture is going to be found, and what we're talking about tonight is going to be found in verse 20. Look at what it says. Having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, and the first part of 21, and you. The title of the message tonight is, The War is Over. The War is Over. You may be seated. Now, before I really get into the scripture that we're going to focus on, I think it would do us well um, for a few reasons to take a a look back, and you don't have to turn there, but I want to give a quick summation of Genesis chapter 3 as it relates to what we're going to focus on tonight. Now, I realize that probably most everybody in here is well aware of what is in Genesis chapter 3. It deals with the fall of man, how sin entered into the world. But I always try to be mindful when I come to the scriptures and when I preach that there are also other people that don't have that same background and may not have that same understanding of these things. So I always want to also keep an eye on those people as well so that we can really learn and grasp a hold of what it says. And I think it will bring some richness to us as we look at this initially. So before we get very far, I want to say this, first of all, that peace and fellowship was destroyed by man. Peace and fellowship with God was destroyed by man. So, uh, and you can read it later on for yourself in Genesis chapter 3 is what I'll be talking about just for the next few moments. But in the Garden of Eden, everything was perfect. God had created man and woman, male and female. He created them, uh, and the garden was perfect. And God gave them one command, which was not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's a mouthful. And as you know, the serpent, uh, who we learn is the devil, came and began to tempt them and twist and question God's word. I've said it before, the devil doesn't mind you knowing the word of God as long as you'll listen to his commentary about it. The devil doesn't care if you know the word as long as you'll give him an ear so he can twist and manipulate that. Well, he comes to Eve and he begins to twist and question God's word and say, has God said? And begins to tempt her and the deception works. And she gives in to the temptation and Eve eats of the tree that she was commanded not to. 
Now, in turn, she gives it to her husband, and the Bible talks about that Adam knew better. He willfully disobeyed and took of that fruit and ate of it, and when Adam did, he rebelled and sinned against God. So we see that when man rebelled against God, sin entered into the world, and the Bible says death by sin. The moment that they ate of that, they both died spiritually and ultimately would die physically. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says this, Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So very clear what the Bible says, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So I want you to notice this, that when sin entered into the world, they began to try to make a covering for themselves. It talks about that they sewed fig leaves together. They realized that they were naked. They began to try to uh, make a covering for themselves. See, peace was broken. Fellowship was broken. Peace was gone in this moment. God had not moved, but man had moved away from God. God is always the same, but man had moved away from God. And we see that God went looking for Adam and Eve. God went looking for them for fellowship. But what had happened? There was a break. There was a break in the peace. There was a break in the fellowship with God. And so now there is fear. Now there is fear and they're hiding and they're alienated from God and their peace is gone and their fellowship was broken and they were beginning to realize what it looked like when sin entered into the world. Their life had been wrecked by sin. They're beginning to see some of the results of this. Now, not only that, because of sin, the curse entered into the world. You'll hear of the curse that entered into the world because God passed down judgment upon this action that happened. And in the, in the process, you see that the serpent was cursed. He's gonna crawl on his belly and eat dust. You see that the woman is going to experience additional sorrows in childbirth and be subject to the man. You see that the ground was cursed for Adam's sake. And from that point on, man's experience really became sorrows and toil and thorns and thistles until the day he died and went back to the dust from which he came. Now, I want you to know this, that the curse didn't just affect man, but it affected all of creation. So we see sin entering into the world. We see that fellowship is broken with God. We see that there is a curse that comes into the world. It affects not only man, but all of creation is now affected by this curse. And so really began the war, so to speak. Began the war because sinful man is rebelling against a holy and righteous God. See, all the descendants of Adam are sinful, fully depraved. They are alienated from God. The Bible says enemies of God. They are, um, they are the peace and fellowship has been broken. We have desperately wicked hearts when we enter into this world and we are rebellious by nature. And not only is man at enmity with God, but there is this spiritual battle that begins to take place between good and evil from this moment on. Now in the midst of this, God gives a promise of redemption. And there are really two verses that I want to draw your attention to in this because it directly relates to what we're talking about tonight. God gives a promise of, re of redemption that a savior is going to come of the seed of a woman. So look at what it says 
in Genesis chapter 3.15. And I really, I don't know if I heard this somewhere, maybe dad preached a message on this one time, but I call this really God's sermon to the devil. God's sermon to the devil says, you're cursed, and by the way, I'm going to send a savior someday that's going to set all this in order. And so God says to the serpent in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And so God is giving this prophecy. One day, a Savior would come, born of a virgin, the seed of the woman, uh, of the Holy Spirit. Jesus would come into the world, God in the flesh. And he's saying that that Savior is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. In the process, his heel would be bruised. I'm reminded it on the cross. It says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And so we see that, yes, there was a bruising, there was a breaking that happened, but at the same time, there was a crushing of the serpent that was going to take place. And God was pointing ahead to that. It was a prophecy about Jesus. Not only that, but something else incredible happens. And this is really where it's going to tie back in to what we're talking about in Colossians. God is going to demonstrate what reconciliation looks like and the remedy for sin. So we see that sin entered into the world, death by sin, and now we're going to see God is promising a Savior someday out in the future that's going to crush the serpent, but not only that, he's going to demonstrate in a type of what reconciliation looks like and the remedy for sin. That's in verse 21 of Genesis chapter 3. She should have it up here. Uh, it says, unto Adam... And also to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them? Remember, they were naked. There was fear. They were alienated from God. Now they're hiding from God. Peace has been broken. Fellowship has been broken. They were looking for a covering, and they tried to make their own covering. But now we see God is demonstrating to them what reconciliation and uh, remedy for sin. See, the, the thing here is only God could reconcile fallen man to himself. Only God could bring the remedy that was needed for, follow, for fallen man. And the shedding of blood was necessary for that remedy. And so God is giving a demonstration of what he is going to happen in the future. Now notice this. This is where it really will make sense later on as we get into the message. Notice that God, an alienated man, remember fellowship, peace is broken, there's, there's a division here now, right? And God and alienated man are coming together over a sacrifice. They're coming together over a sacrifice. Blood was shed. God killed an animal or an animal's blood is shed. And a covering was given to Adam and Eve by God. And he was pointing to Jesus. He was giving them a type of what it's going to look like whenever all this thing that's out of sorts, it's all messed up, that's gone completely haywire in the world, God was showing them this is what it's going to look like. God and man coming together over a sacrifice. Blood will be shed and the result will be the covering for man that God has provided. Do you follow me so far? So now we can come to our text because we have a foundation. There's a problem here. Everything 
was messed up in the world. Everything is being, uh, it's gone haywire in the world. There's a battle between man and between God. There's a spiritual battle that's taking place and only God could bring the restoration that was necessary. And so God demonstrated in type and now we're going to look at what Paul is saying to the Colossians about what has happened about the work of Jesus Christ. So tonight we're going to talk about the reconciling work of Christ, the reconciling work of Christ. Now, as I've said, peace and fellowship were broken. It was destroyed by man, but God had a plan. God had a means by which he would bring restoration. See, God has reconciled man to himself by his son, Jesus Christ. Tonight, as we're sitting in this church, God has already accomplished what was necessary to reconcile man to himself, but we're going to see how this happened. See, Paul is one to explain to the Colossian believers exactly what this means. So not only are they going to have a clear view of Christ, as we found last week, but he's also going to give them a clear view of the work of Christ. Are you with me? So let's look at verse 20 of Colossians chapter 1. Notice, first of all, it says, having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. Now, I want to define this word reconciliation before we get any further, because this is one of those words, you hear it, your eyes stare off into space, and you start thinking about what you had for breakfast if you don't have a a definition to bring your mind back to reality. So before you start thinking about the eggs you had earlier this morning, I want to give you a definition so that we can hear uh, the word of God and have understanding with it at the same time. So I think you could explain this word reconciling or reconciliation in this way. It's when two opposing parties come together over common ground by which a barrier is removed and both the parties are restored. So it's where two parties opposing can come together over common ground by which a barrier is removed and fellowship is restored. Let me give you an example of uh, uh, kind of pointing in this direction of something you might have seen in everyday life. For example, at a funeral, two parties that are alienated from each other, family members, sometimes outright enemies, you'll see that when the funeral happens, suddenly they're coming together and they're coming together over the common ground of this loved one and for a time, they're reconciled to each other over the death of this loved one. They have a common ground so they put aside their differences just for a little bit. The only problem is with that, it normally doesn't last very long. But with God, things work differently. It's kind of like that, but different. See, when God brings uh, reconciliation, he brings a total, complete, lasting change by his grace through his son. He brings a total change of heart, and he brings a total change of mind. The reconciling work of Christ can take enemies of God and make them friends. That's what we're talking about tonight, the reconciling of God. Now, the word here in the Greek is the word apokatalasso. It means to reconcile completely, not partially. It means to reconcile completely. It's the strongest form of the shorter word, katalasso, which means to change from enemy to friendship, to reconcile. 
so in terms of what we're talking about, it's the strongest word possible, and it means to change from one condition to another condition. It means to remove all enmity or war or hostility and leave no barriers to unity and peace. So what God is doing, he's taking an alienated man who is separated from God and he's going to change him completely, fully and completely, one that is an enemy and he's going to make him a friend is what God is going to do. That's what the reconciling work of Christ is all about and it's not a partial thing, it is a complete, total change. Does that make sense? So we're talking about the work of Jesus on the cross. His death in particular, we're going to see later, is the only common ground between God and man whereby the barrier of sin is removed completely and man is totally restored or reconciled to God. That's the only common ground is the cross of Jesus Christ. So now let's look at the work of Christ for us. The work of Christ for us. Now, as I said last week, we talked about the supremacy of Christ. We talked about how he is supreme in all creation. There is none greater than Jesus Christ. And then now he's moving on in this epistle to the work of Christ. And really, he's giving them that clear view. Last week, we talked about the lenses that he was giving them so that they could have clear vision of who Jesus is. And now he wants them to know about the work of Jesus. And really it's a continuation of the thought in his prayer of thankfulness that he began in verses 12 through 14. Let me read that for you, verses 12 through 14. Giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet or qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us or conveyed us into the kingdom of his dear Son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. So he, he begins this thought earlier in the, in the epistle, and he talks about how we have redemption through Jesus' blood. We have forgiveness of sin. He talks about how we've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness, the devil's grip, and we've been put into the kingdom of light. And he talks about how that we've been qualified to be partakers of the saints of God in light, that we have a guarantee that we're going to join and other believers in heaven and be with him forever and ever. And not only that, but he tells them, he expounds the person of Christ and now he's talking about the work of Christ. So here's what I want you to see. Jesus made peace for us. Let me say that again. Jesus made peace for us. Look at verse 20 again. It says, Jesus made peace through the blood of his cross. In the midst of alienation, the enemies of God, Jesus came and made peace for us because he is the peacemaker. Jesus is the one who brings peace. The book of Romans says this, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about that now through Jesus, through the work, Jesus has made peace for us and we have been justified by faith and trusting in the work of Jesus Christ and now we are having peace with God because of that work. Three things I want you to notice about this peace. Peace had to be made. It wouldn't come naturally. 
Peace doesn't come naturally. You think about in a war, peace is not going to come until a superior force defeats the opposition and the opposing party surrenders unconditionally. That's when peace is gonna show up. When two parties are warring, there must be some conquering that happens. So Jesus made peace for us. It couldn't be done on its own. It wasn't going to naturally occur. Jesus made peace. Number two, the instrument of peace is the cross. Notice that in that verse, having made peace through the blood of his cross. That is the instrument by which peace is made. The way that God chose to defeat the powers of darkness and to defeat our enemies was the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen. The instrument of peace. Not only that, but the means by which it was accomplished was his blood. His blood. When you think about the word peace, what's the opposite of that word that comes to mind? War. The opposite of peace is war. And so there, in war, there is what? Bloodshed. In war, there is bloodshed. And man was warring against God, the uh, warring against the justice of God and the righteousness and the holiness of God. And the justice of God says, the soul that sins shall die. And the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. And so we see that what was having to be accomplished was having to be accomplished by the blood of Jesus Christ. Peace had to be made, and it had to be made by blood. Blood was required. That is the requirement. Way back in Genesis, God demonstrated that to the first man and woman. He said, blood is required if you're ever going to have a covering for your unrighteousness and your sins. And so, because that was the standard, God sent his son to die in our place. On the cross, the instrument of peace, Jesus suffered and died and took our punishment and death. He shed his blood so that we could live. And peace was made through the blood of the cross. Amen. You know the story in Exodus when the children of Israel were getting ready to come out of Egypt and God said, you're going to apply the blood of the lamb to the doorpost, to the two side posts and the upper post. And he said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. What happened? They were making peace through the blood. What was happening is they were saying, I'm trusting in the blood of the lamb. And when they applied that to the door, when that death angel passed by, the wrath of God passed them on by because peace had been made through the blood of the lamb peace had to be made it had to be made by blood and the instrument of doing so was the cross of calvary not only that i want you to notice the work of jesus on the cross brought reconciliation there's that word again two parties opposing being completely reconciled tearing down all barriers everything every impediment and bringing total unity and total complete peace with god that's the word we're talking about let's read again verses 20 through 22 and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. 
Now, as I said, man had a problem. Everything was out of sorts. We've seen that in Genesis chapter 3. We talked about that. Continued on through sinful man all through history. And Jesus is coming to reconcile. We were hopelessly lost, totally depraved, alienated from God. Enemies of God, the Bible says. Enemies of God in opposition to God. And yet, we were fighting against God and God sends his son to turn the situation around because only God could turn this thing around. And it is to reconcile completely all things to himself. All things to himself. Jesus made peace through the blood of the cross and without the work of the cross, it would be impossible to be reconciled to God. The book of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Not possible. The sin barrier could never be removed by any kind of effort of man. It took the work of Christ. It took the work of Jesus. All those sacrifices that were made, they were pointing to the one who actually could take the sins away and cast it as far as the east is to the west and forget about it and it'd be totally washed away and paid for in full. That's what he's talking about. He's pointing to that. There was no other way to do it. And so we talk about now the result of the work of Christ. Number one, all things that can be reconciled will be reconciled. Now, I say that for a reason. Let's look at this again in verse 20. And I know you're thinking we'll never get out of verse 20, but we will. I promise. It says about midway through, to reconcile all things unto himself. So we're talking about something that's going to happen, to reconcile all things to himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Now, let me say something very quickly. This verse is not teaching universalism, that someday everybody's going to be saved and everybody's going to be reconciled to God and it's going to be great peace and harmony because that is simply not true. Not everybody is going to be saved in the end. Not everybody is going to be reconciled. The devil is not going to be reconciled. There is a place in the lake of fire for the devil and his angels. The devil's fallen angels are not going to be reconciled. Unbelievers who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ are not going to be reconciled. So what am I saying? I'm saying all things that can be reconciled will be reconciled. Now hold on with me. It's going to make a little bit more sense here in just a moment. Hang with me. Notice the phrase in our verse. It says whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Now, notice that it does not include the phrase under the earth. It doesn't say under the earth. It says things in earth and things in heaven, but it says nothing about things under the earth. Perhaps those things under the earth are those things which cannot be reconciled. That there, I don't understand exactly what all this is going to entail until someday we're going to see what all this entails, but it does not include those things under the earth. When we think about hell, we think hell's down and heaven's up. I think that's kind of the idea here. Things under the earth are not going to be reconciled. So again, I say all things that can be reconciled will be reconciled. But we do know this, ultimately everything will be reconciled or set in order 
surrender and submit to Jesus as Lord. Let me show you what I mean. This will make sense to you now. Philippians chapter 2, you know the verses, verses 9 through 11. You're going to know it immediately, but read it in this light now. Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All things that can be reconciled will be reconciled, and everything that cannot be reconciled will submit, and in the end, all things are going to be set in order and proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. That's what I'm talking about. This verse also shows us that in the future, creation is going to be reconciled. In the future, creation is going to be reconciled. It hasn't happened yet. That part hasn't happened yet. It says in our verse 20, it says to reconcile. In the future, to reconcile all things unto himself, things in earth and things in heaven. So the book of Romans says we know that all that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Right now, the creation is groaning under that curse that we talked about. Way back in Genesis, still on the earth, there's still thorns and thistles and sorrow and sweat and all of these things and death on this earth. And right now, all of creation is groaning under that curse. And the curse someday will be removed and creation will be restored completely. You think about right now the antelope drinking some water out of the river and everything's great, minding its own business, and then it gets ate by a lion. What's up with that? That was rude. That's what I'm talking about. Creation groans. There's pain, there's heartache, there's, there's sorrow that's happening, but it's going to be restored. Isaiah gives us a picture of that. We just had a study about the millennium. That's when things, creation, is truly going to be restored, like you wouldn't, like nothing you've ever seen. That's when creation is going to be restored. Let me just read some verses out of Isaiah, and you're going to see reconciliation, a complete change from what we're looking at now. Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. And the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What once groaned under the curse is going to rejoice in that time, having been totally, completely reconciled by Jesus. We're seeing that parents are going to say, why don't you go out and play with the cobra? Why don't you stick your hand down in there and pull him out of there? He'll play with you. It's not a big deal. You'll be all right. The Lord's on the throne. <laughs> don't try that yet. This is future. But we're talking about something now 
which is present, which is man can be reconciled to God now. Now man can be reconciled. Look at verse 21. And you. It's pointing a finger at us. Isn't that a finger pointing verse? And you. And you. And you. And you. That were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet when? Now. Has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight? The work that Jesus did on the cross offers reconciliation now. God is reconciled to man, and so he's waiting on man to choose to be reconciled to him. Peace has been made by the blood of his cross. The work that Christ did is a finished work, and the benefits are available today, right now. Notice this about, this about what we're talking about. Man can be reconciled now. Notice this. Man is the one in need of reconciliation. I think we've kind of established that, that God had not changed, but man's sin brought alienation, and we became enemies with God, and enemies in our mind and in our work. So there's a mental block, an enemy with God here, and also in our works, there's an issue there. And so we are totally estranged from God, and we're cut off, and we needed reconciliation. Man needs that. Man needs that. So today, man continues in their sin, don't they? They continue on fighting against God. He wars against the holiness and the justice of God. And the Bible talks about the wrath of God does abide on those people. And it doesn't have to be that way. That's the thing. It doesn't have to be that way. Peace has been made. Reconciliation is now available to you. Notice not only that, man is the one in need of reconciliation. Jesus is the one by whom reconciliation came and is possible. Now watch this. We're just like Adam and Eve. We all have, Adam shows up in every one of us. Rebellious, hopeless, unrighteous, you name it, all, all the rest and God comes for us, just like we've seen back in Genesis. God comes looking for Adam. And he knew our condition. When he said, Adam, where are you? He didn't ask that because he didn't know. He said, Adam, do you know where you are? And God comes looking. He knew our corruption. And he knew that we could not help him ourselves. So he gave us his son. Now, here's something beautiful. We're talking about the cross in this, and I want you to think about this. The vertical post of the cross, the up and down, that is the direction of reconciliation, right? God and man being reconciled. And the horizontal beam of the cross is the breadth, the width of reconciliation that is available. He's saying, all who will come to me, I will in no wise cast out. He is saying reconciliation between God and man, and whoever wants it, come and get it. Arms wide open, offering reconciliation. Whoever's going to come and get it. Why? Because peace has been made through the blood of his cross, and reconciliation has happened through his death for us on that cross hallelujah the bible says god was in christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses unto them that's in second corinthians 5 19 see the pure and spotless lamb of god was slain on the cross for us 
His blood was shed. His body is broken and bruised. He bore the full, unrestrained wrath of God on the cross and died for us, and peace was made, and the wrath of God was satisfied. Satisfied. By the blood of Jesus, we are justified in God's sight. That means declared righteous. And through his death, we are reconciled completely. All the barriers removed, unity and peace totally, completely restored by the cross. See, the cross is the only common ground by which man can be reconciled to God. It's the only common ground by which they can come together. So what you would say to people today is come to that cross. Come to that instrument of peace. Come to the blood of Jesus and have your sins washed away. Come and experience the reconciliation that God has for you. Come and be completely reconciled by his substitutionary death. Romans 5, 8 through 10 says this, God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, We shall be saved from wrath through him. Isn't that what we've been talking about? For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So not only are we reconciled by his death and our sins are washed away by his blood, we're declared righteous in the sight of God. All sins have been washed away, but we're going to follow him in resurrection to life because Jesus didn't just die, he rose again from the grave and he's seated at the right hand of the Father tonight. So as we go through this process, we're going to follow him in resurrection to life forevermore. Victory is won. Peace has been made. The believer is justified and reconciled to God. Hallelujah. I'm going to wrap this thing up in a hurry. It brings me to the title of the sermon, The War is Over. The War is Over. Reconciliation is available to all who will surrender, right? Everything that has been accomplished is completely and fully satisfying to God. Jesus has satisfied all the requirements that God had. Peace has been made. We've been justified by his blood. I love that, declared righteous by God. And we've been saved from wrath and reconciled by his death. And someday we're going to be glorified in his resurrection. All we have to do is surrender to him. When you came to Jesus, you surrendered to to him. And you said, the war is, is over. I'm done fighting, God. I'm done. The war is over. I surrender. I read a story, I heard uh, David Jeremiah actually told this story, and and it talks about this very thing, I think it's worth repeating, because there was a soldier in World War II, a Japanese soldier by the name of uh, Hiro Anada, and he was a lieutenant in the Imperial Japanese Army in World War II, he was an intelligence officer, and so on December 26, 1944, he was sent to the Lubang Islands in the Philippines, And he was ordered to try to hamper enemy attacks on the island. And uh, his orders were this. Under no circumstance was he to surrender or take his own life. But unfortunately, no one told him when the war ended. 
No one told him when the war ended. So eating rice and coconuts, he stole cattle. He lived in the jungle for 29 years, 29 years. And he occasionally carried out guerrilla warfare on civilians even. He avoided search parties that came looking for him because he believed that they were enemy scouts. The, uh, they would fly over and drop leaflets saying, the war is over, you can come home. And he took it as enemy propaganda from the U.S. troops. They even went so far as dropping uh, pictures of his family and newspaper articles and, and things of that nature. And he, every time he would get it, he would look it over very closely and decide, no, this must be another trick of the enemy trying to flush me out of the jungle and to get me to surrender. Must be. They even had his family come out, different family members come out. And he was trained in survival. He was good at what he was doing. He was collecting intelligence. He was carrying out, he was trained. He knew what he was doing. And uh, they even had his family come out and talk over the loudspeaker and say, come out, the war's done, the war's over. But every time they did something, he would find some reason why it was suspicious and how it had to be another trick. They're just trying to get me out of these woods, out of this jungle. The war's over. Surely not. Japan would never surrender. He didn't know about the bomb that had been dropped. So eventually, someone comes looking for Hiro, and they find him, and they can't convince him to come out, but they go and find his commanding officer, and he happens to be selling books in southern Japan by this time. And uh, he flies to Lubang, and he officially reads the terms of the ceasefire to Onada and relieved him of his duty. On March 9th, 1974, nearly 30 years after the war ended, Onada finally surrendered. He was 22 years old when he arrived on that island, and he was now 52 years old. They asked him later on in an interview, about the time there, and he said this, nothing pleasant happened in the 29 years in the jungle. What am I saying with this? I'm saying the war is over. I'm saying to some believers out there tonight, you're fighting and you're warring and you're saying, I have to do this, I have to do better, I have to somehow earn this and I have to, I have to add some steps to it and I have to satisfy God somehow and I gotta keep fighting, I gotta keep doing it because the war, surely the war is not over and I'm saying to you tonight, the cross of Christ, the work of Jesus is a finished work and the work is over. Simply surrender to him and let the blessings of God come to you you and fill your life with joy. The war is over. I'm saying to some unsaved people, the war is over. Why needlessly keep fighting against God? Why do you keep warring against God? It's not necessary. The war is over. Jesus has gave himself on the cross of Calvary. The war is over. The blood has been shed. We've been reconciled. It's all been done. Just come out and surrender already. Because nothing pleasant's gonna happen in that jungle where you're at. Why needlessly and senselessly die? Not only that, redeemed man is going to be presented faultless in the sight of God. We're gonna be presented faultless in the sight of God. Look at the 
Verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. We're going to pass inspection with no problem. If you've ever been like me, you've had some clunker cars and your bumper fell off and your pipes were dragging and inspection time was not a fun event. (laughs) You may today... Had your bumper fall off and your pipes are dragging, but someday God is going to present you and you're going to pass. You're going to pass. For example's sake, let's just say on that day when the church is being presented, uh, let's say that there's some questions that are going to be asked. And suppose there's a three-pronged test and they say, is he holy? Is he unblameable? Is he unreprovable? Is the church these things? Is she, is she all these things? And if we're in our own merits, the answer is no, no, no. But with Christ, clothed in the righteousness of Christ and the finished work of Jesus Christ, the answer is yes, yes, yes. Presentable. We're going to pass. The book of Jude says that he is able to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. We are going to be presented pure and clean. When God looks on the outside, he's going to see Jesus. And when God looks on the inside, he's going to see Jesus. And because reconciliation has happened now to the believer, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. Amen. The responsibility of man in the light of the work of Christ, verse 23. I'm going to move real quick so I can wrap this up. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard and which was preached to every creature, which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. He says, if you continue in the faith, you know, continuing in the faith is actually really an evidence of the saving grace in the life of a believer. You may stumble and fail, you may backslide, but in the end, when the believer comes to Christ, when there's a work of grace that happens, that continuance in the faith is, an, is actually a testimony of the fact that a person has truly been born again. They're going to come back to the Lord. If that work of grace has begun in their heart, see, the one who is saved by God's grace is going to be kept by God's grace. God is going to keep them. That's something that he's going to do. And that is a testimony of the work of God in the life of a believer when they continue. You take somebody that 20 years ago went forward in an evangelistic crusade, and the night they went forward was the last time that they ever cracked their Bible open or had anything to do with God, anything with God's people, or anything of that nature, I'll tell you, that person is an unregenerated man. But the person who continues, oh, that's where it's at. God's going to keep them. The church of Colossae was called to persevere. They were called to press on, to continue in the faith, to be grounded, to be settled, to stay true, to to stay close to the truth of the gospel, to make the work of Christ their place of rest. They were to put down their roots deep in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you are willing to be kept by God, God is willing to keep you. 
Finally, be faithful in suffering. Look at verse 24 and 25. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Paul was thankful for the ministry God had given him, thankful for the work that God was doing in his life, and he was content to suffer for the cause of Christ. Paul was no stranger to suffering. He was constantly persecuted. He was constantly in prison. He knew what it meant to suffer for the cause of Christ, and he felt those afflictions in his body, and the suffering that he experienced was for the cause of Christ and for the body of Christ. He said, it's for you when he wrote this letter. Now, there's something you may be wondering about in this verse, and I want to touch on it just for a moment. It says in verse 24, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, and whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Notice that it says, fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh. This is not saying that the suffering as it relates to Christ's redemption, uh, the suffering of redemption on the cross is incomplete. That's not what he's saying. The redemptive suffering that happened on the cross is a finished and complete work. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. The suffering for redemption is totally and completely done. That's not what Paul is talking about. I think the Catholics sometimes even get purgatory out of this verse. They try to say we have to suffer for redemption. That is not what he's talking about here. That is totally and completely a finished work. The cross has finished all of that. Redemption is a done deal. Jesus did it. Peace by the blood of the cross, reconciliation. I think you understand that. What he's saying is he is identified with the sufferings of Christ as a minister of the gospel. When Christ was on earth, he was despised. He was rejected. He was persecuted. And Paul, as an apostle of Jesus, continues the experience because they hate him because of who he represents. They hate him because he preaches the gospel. They hate him because of who he is preaching. And so in that respect, he is filling up that which is behind. Those people that didn't get their fill of of, uh, persecuting Jesus and persecuting him while he was here on the earth, walking the earth, now they turn to persecute the believers of Christ, to persecute the followers of Christ who minister the gospel. That's what he's talking about. He says, the suffering that I'm doing is the persecutions that Jesus felt on this earth, and I'm continuing those and as I do it as I'm in jail for the cause of Christ and I'm writing this letter to you I am doing this suffering because Jesus has called me to it and as I do it it's for you all that's what he's talking about and finally last but not least the mystery the source of the believers strength and hope verse 26 and 27 even the mystery which was hid from the ages and from generations but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
It was hidden from past generations. They knew that salvation would come to the Gentiles. But what he's saying is right now, Christ now dwells in every member of the body of Christ, Jew and Gentiles, no division, together in one body, the body of Christ. And from that indwelling Christ, we find our hope and strength, the hope of glory. And as the Holy Spirit is inside of us, it is the earnest that we will someday be glorified and receive more of that. So every believer in the body of Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, all together in the body of Christ in one, and Christ is living in every single believer. Verse 28 and 29, to finish this chapter out, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. And so here's what I want to say as we wrap this message up. We are to preach and warn and teach every man. That's what he says in this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20 says this. It's the last scripture of the night. And all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. He's saying, you be reconciled, and when you are reconciled, you are given the ministry of reconciliation. What's that? He said the word of reconciliation. What's that? Take the gospel to those who are still in the battle fighting, who don't know the war's over. Take the gospel of Jesus Christ that says you can be restored. You can be reconciled to God. Take the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of reconciliation to somebody and tell them the war is over. The price has been paid. Salvation is freely given. Come to the instrument of peace. Come to the blood of Jesus. Have your sins washed away. Be reconciled by the death of Jesus Christ and someday be glorified in his resurrection. That's what we're talking about in this section of scripture. The war is over. The war is over. Come out of the jungle. It's not a joke. It's not propaganda. It's the real deal. You can be reconciled to God. We're going to have a song and let me say this to you, and I know there are people who join us every week, every service online. Thank you for watching us and, and being part of this church. You're part of our family online. We, we love you and we appreciate that. Right there you can pray, right here in this auditorium you can pray and ask God for whatever needs you have. Maybe you just want to say and declare in your own words, Lord, I believe the war's over. I've heard your word. I receive it just as it was given to the Colossians. I receive it for myself. And tonight, I want to say thank you that you have done it all.
and I have been reconciled. And if you don't know Jesus, wherever you are, whether you're listening, watching, some other means, you can be saved tonight. It's available today. Come to Jesus. We're going to have a song. Stand with me if you would tonight.